Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. In this episode, we're going to cover diabetes, more specifically type 1 diabetes. It's been recognized as a disease, at least by its symptoms, for a long time. As far back as the first century, the Greeks described diabetes as the melting down of flesh and limbs into urine. It sounds ridiculous now, but for a doctor without labs or even a microscope who saw patients peeing all the time while they got ulcers and lost their fingers and limbs, it's not an unreasonable connection to make. Today, we understand things just a little bit better, at least most of them, and can do a pretty good job of managing diabetes once we recognize it. We'll start with a little background on what diabetes is. Both type 1 and type 2 diabetes are caused by not having enough insulin. The difference is that people with type 2 diabetes are insulin resistant, while people with type 1 diabetes just don't make insulin in general. Type 1 diabetes is the result of autoimmune destruction of the insulin-producing beta cells in the pancreas. But while we know what's happening, we still don't really know why. It doesn't seem to be 100% genetic, since not all pairs of identical twins both have diabetes. But it also isn't environmental or infectious, since we don't see cases come up in geographic clusters. Right now, the leading theory is a combination of the two, that genetically susceptible people are hit by some kind of inciting event maybe a particular virus, which triggers an immune response that also affects the pancreas. Regardless of the cause, without enough insulin, the body can't get glucose from the bloodstream into the cells that need it. Those cells still need glucose, so the body keeps trying to get it to them, which makes the blood sugar keep climbing as the body keeps absorbing glucose from food and breaks down energy stores. Once the blood glucose concentration hits a certain point, usually somewhere around 180 or 200, it's gone beyond what the kidneys are able to reabsorb and glucose starts spilling into the urine. If you remember back to your basic science classes, glucose is osmotically active, and that means that glucose in the kidney tubules is going to pull water along with it and act like a diuretic. That extra urine output and the extra thirst that goes along with it are the classic clinical signs of diabetes and what the first doctors who described the disease noticed. The history of diabetes is full of urine. Up until the 11th century, diabetes was diagnosed by people called water tasters, who had the delightful job of sampling the patient's urine to see if it tasted sweet. And, in the 1600s, diabetes was commonly called the pissing evil. Feel free to use that next time you talk to an endocrinologist. That segues pretty nicely into how diabetes presents itself. In general, there are three ways a patient makes you think diabetes presenting with classic symptoms, going into diabetic ketoacidosis, or as an incidental finding. We'll get the incidental finding out of the way first because it's the least common of the three. In these cases, a kid who's having labs run for something completely unrelated has a result that makes you wonder if they have diabetes. For example, a urinalysis to evaluate for a UTI comes back with really high levels of glucose in the urine. Hyperglycemia precedes symptoms of diabetes, so these are the lucky patients who get detected early. The classic symptoms of diabetes are polyuria and polydipsia, drinking and peeing all the time. We already mentioned the mechanism for the polyuria, and the polydipsia is just the body trying to keep up with all the water it's losing. Another symptom that should get your attention is the return of bedwetting in a child who had been dry through the night. It's not a regression, it's just that all the extra urine overwhelms their control. A couple of other classic symptoms that are a little less common are increased appetite, weight loss, and blurred vision. 
The increased appetite and weight loss go together because without being able to utilize glucose, the body thinks it's starving and starts breaking down fats and other alternative energy sources. Patients try to keep up by eating more, but they still have the same problem getting glucose from their bloodstream into the cells. The blurry vision is another consequence of hyperglycemia causing fluid shifts, this time by making the lens in the eye swell and distort. The last way that new-onset diabetes presents is with diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA. DKA happens when the body's compensatory mechanisms start failing and accounts for about 25% of new-onset diabetes presentations. The problems from DKA happen on a couple of fronts. On one end, the osmotic diuresis from hyperglycemia keeps causing the body to lose more and more water until eventually the patient can't keep up and starts to get dehydrated. On the other end, the liver starts producing ketone bodies from stored fats to use as an energy source. Those ketone bodies are acidic, and while the body has buffer systems to compensate, remember back to our episode on acid-base disorders, they get overwhelmed and the patient tips into acidosis. The combination of dehydration and acidosis is what leads to classic symptoms of DKA, lack of appetite, vomiting, and abdominal pain. The fruity-smelling breath that sometimes shows up on test questions is a result of the acetone produced along with the ketone bodies. DKA is an emergency and needs to be recognized and treated quickly. If someone has the clinical symptoms to make you think about it, you should get a basic chemistry panel, arterial blood gas, and a test for ketones, preferably in the blood. To diagnose DKA, you need hyperglycemia with a blood glucose over 250, anion gap metabolic acidosis defined as a pH under 7.3 with an anion gap greater than 10, and ketones detected in the blood although sometimes the urine is good enough if the rest of the presentation is screaming DKA. To treat DKA, you need to correct the underlying problems of dehydration and a catabolic, meaning breaking molecules down, state. Did you notice that hyperglycemia is not one of the problems we're correcting? The blood sugar will come down, and it needs to stay down in the future. But even after it's in the normal range, the patient still needs insulin until their metabolic abnormalities have corrected. If the blood sugar starts getting low before the acidosis is resolved, you just add dextrose to the IV fluids and keep giving insulin. I'm not going to spend much time on the details of treatment. Most hospitals have protocols they follow, but the basics are insulin, often as an infusion, and a boatload of IV fluids with serial lab monitoring to keep track of how well your patient is correcting and to tell you if any adjustments need to be made. The last thing to mention on DKA is cerebral edema which is typically more of a problem after you start treating the patient. It happens in 1% or less of patients, but has more than a 20% mortality rate. While we're doing the right thing by managing the dehydration and hyperglycemia, all the changes can set the patient up for fluid shifts that can cause the brain to swell. There are clinical diagnostic criteria for cerebral edema, like abnormal response to pain, abnormal posturing, cranial nerve palsy, and altered respiratory patterns, but all of those indicate advanced edema, so we'll focus on the early warning signs. The major early signs to keep an eye out for are altered mental status, sustained heart rate deceleration, and age-inappropriate incontinence, while the minor criteria are vomiting, headache, lethargy, a diastolic blood pressure greater than 90, and age under 5 years. Two major signs, or one major and two minor, are enough to start treatment with mannitol or hypertonic saline. Before you start anyone on long-term maintenance treatment for diabetes, 
even patients who present with DKA, you should confirm the diagnosis and try to separate type 1 from type 2 diabetes. There are four different criteria you can choose from to diagnose a child with diabetes. A glycohemoglobin of 6.5% or higher, a blood glucose of 126 or higher after an 8-hour fast, a 2-hour glucose tolerance test reading of 200 or higher, or a random blood glucose of 200 or higher with symptoms of hyperglycemia. Any one of those criteria is enough to make the diagnosis, although when I was studying for boards, they seemed to really like the glucose tolerance test. As for separating type 1 and type 2 diabetes, patients with type 2 have a stronger family history, usually present after puberty, and are more likely to have other metabolic syndrome type problems like obesity, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. At this point, you probably all know that the treatment for type 1 diabetes is insulin, but we've actually only been using it since 1922. Doctors realized that the pancreas was the root of the problem in diabetes all the way back in 1889, when Oscar Minkowski and Joseph von Meering removed a dog's pancreas to study what effects it would have on digestion. After the operation, they noticed that flies were swarming wherever the dog peed because of all the sugar spilling into the urine. This is just another example in our ongoing theme that old-time science was just totally crazy. Because scientists were still at the point of cutting organs out of dogs to see what would happen, even though they knew the pancreas was the problem in diabetes, they didn't know what was missing and couldn't turn that knowledge into a treatment. In the meantime, people tried all sorts of different things. Because it was the 1900s, people did try opium, which probably helped with symptoms, but didn't do much for prognosis. Fad diets were also big back then, just like they are now. There was the milk cure, the rice cure, something called potato therapy, and the oat cure, which involved eating 8 ounces of oatmeal mixed with 8 ounces of butter every 2 hours, and I would assume also a lot of vomiting and other trips to the bathroom. Obviously to us, none of these treatments worked, and diabetes was basically a death sentence, usually within a few months. Finally, in 1921, Frederick Banting and Charles Best discovered insulin and found that it lowered dogs' blood sugar when it was injected. Then, James Collop and J.J.R. McLeod helped develop insulin for treating humans with diabetes. The first person to be successfully treated with insulin was a 14-year-old boy named Leonard Thompson. He was nearly dead in 1922 when he first started being treated, but came back around and went on living his life. He did end up dying of pneumonia at age 27, but that was less to do with diabetes than with the fact that it was 1935 and antibiotics just weren't really a thing yet. The history of diabetes treatment is more interesting than the present because once you make the diagnosis, it's all about fine-tuning the patient's regimen. All patients, or parents depending on your patient's age, need to learn how to check their blood sugar, draw up and give insulin, and identify and manage low blood sugar. In the early stages, patients generally need to do a lot of blood glucose monitoring to make sure they're keeping track of how they respond to a dose of insulin so that their regimen can be adjusted to keep their blood sugar in the right range. As a general rule, insulin regimens try to mimic what a healthy pancreas would do, with long-acting insulin like glargine or detimer to maintain metabolism during fasting, and a short-acting insulin like Lispro or Aspart to cover whatever the patient eats. The short-acting insulin is usually dosed based on either the number of carbohydrates in a meal, for example, one unit per 10 grams of carbohydrates, or based on what the blood sugar is before they eat. 
Carp counting is harder, but most endocrinologists prefer to at least give it a try because it's more exact and allows for more variation in diet. In the early stages of treatment, you also have to consider the honeymoon phase. The honeymoon phase is a period after treatment starts where the pancreas still has some functioning beta cells left. The mechanism isn't entirely clear, but after treatment starts, these cells get back to producing insulin and sometimes make enough to where the patient can decrease their insulin dose or even temporarily come off it altogether. Sooner or later, those remaining beta cells will burn out and the patient has to go back on insulin usually within seven months. A few other quick notes on diabetes management that come up in practice and on tests from time to time. First, hypoglycemia is a risk when you're aiming for tight control. Patients usually have tremors, weakness, anxiety, sweating, and tachycardia in the early stages, but some, especially those who have had diabetes for a long time, have poor hypoglycemic awareness and might not notice many symptoms at all. Symptoms or not, hypoglycemia is acutely dangerous because it can progress to seizures, arrhythmias, and death if it's not treated quickly with oral glucose. Simple sugars like juice or crushable candies work really well, or glucagon. Exercise is also obviously important for everyone, but it can be tricky in diabetic patients because it increases the body's energy demands and can throw off their usual insulin management plan. It's recommended that patients check their blood sugar before, after, and each hour during exercise and aim to keep themselves higher than the 100 to 120 range to account for the extra demand. There's also a risk of delayed hypoglycemia as the body works to replete its glycogen stores after the exercise is over. As a general rule, lower insulin doses are recommended rather than increased glucose intake, but snacks and sports drinks will help in a pinch. Illness can also alter the body's metabolism, usually with the stress response causing increased glucose levels, although poor oral intake can also bring blood sugar lower. Sick diabetic patients need to be monitored for dehydration, hypoglycemia, and DKA. If they're running low, they should get less insulin or more glucose, and don't be afraid to give a little extra insulin if the usual regimen isn't keeping things under control. Finally, some health maintenance. Patients with diabetes are at risk for other autoimmune diseases, particularly hypothyroidism and celiac disease, and the recommendation is to screen for both shortly after diabetes is diagnosed and to keep checking TSH every one or two years. As for the long-term complications of diabetes, screening is based on how old the patient is and how long they've been diabetic. To screen for kidney disease, you should check the urine for microalbumin, small amounts of protein, every year in patients who are 10 or older and have had diabetes for at least 5 years. Retinopathy screening with an annual dilated eye exam is also recommended for patients who are 10 or older, but starts 3 years after diabetes is diagnosed. Diabetic neuropathy is rare in the pediatric population because it takes a lot of years of poor control, but annual foot exams are still recommended starting at puberty. That's all for our review of diabetes. For take-home points, remember that polyuria and polydipsia are the classic symptoms of diabetes and that you can make a diagnosis with a glycohemoglobin of 6.5 or higher, a blood glucose of 126 or higher after an 8-hour fast, a 2-hour glucose tolerance test reading of 200 or higher, or a random blood glucose of 200 or higher with symptoms of hyperglycemia. DKA is an emergency and should be treated with insulin and lots of IV fluids. You don't need to worry too much about details for any tests you might have coming up, since there's some variability between hospital protocols. 
Patients with diabetes should keep an eye on their blood sugar before, during, and after exercise and shift their target blood sugar a little higher than usual to account for increased demands. As for ongoing management, it's important to have both long and short-acting insulin as part of the regimen. Long-acting as a baseline and short-acting to help cover meals and snacks. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please give us a rating on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you find your podcasts. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can email me directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Pete Soup.